Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Welcome to the EY Health Sciences and Wellness Experience podcast series. A series dedicated to exploring the trends that are reshaping the industry. No one is completely blowing up their existing supply chain and and rebalancing it. It's fairly globally distributed on an end-to-end basis already, and they're really assessing is there a risk to the existing supply chain. Join us to examine and embrace the age of health experience. Ahead of the coronation of King Charles III, some may ask, what's the point of modern monarchies? Join me, Katty Kay, as I visit royal houses across Europe, where kings and queens are swapping palaces for apartments and finding their place in a new era. It's a surprising story featuring scandals, shamans, and a royal dynasty plotting its return. Stream Europe's Royals Revealed on BBC Select. Find out more at bbcselect.com forward slash Europe's Royals. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. In 2008, 23-year-old Norwegian student Martina Vik Magnusson was killed in an apartment near Mayfair. Hours after her death, the only suspect in the case fled the UK to Yemen. He's never been questioned by the police. I'm Noel El-Makhafi, and I made a promise to Martina's family 15 years ago to find out what happened. Murder in Mayfair. Part of the documentary. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry on Discovery for the BBC. This is the programme where you send us in the queries, questions and conundrums that you are curious about. And we will look into them on your behalf using the power of science. So please do send us your questions, curiouscases at bbc.co.uk and on with the show. Today's investigation is an absolute knockout, literally. Yes, by the end of this, you should be blissfully unaware of the pain you've been through. Because we had a question come in from two different listeners. Alicia Nissen, a train driver in New South Wales, Australia, and Neil Morton from Stirling in Scotland. And they both emailed curiouscases at bbc.co.uk asking, how do anaesthetics work? What's going on in the body? Have you ever had one, by the way? Just once. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It's just having my wisdom teeth taken out, mm. the cold sensation as the stuff runs up your arm, and then waking up several hours later, not with four teeth short, and not knowing what the hell had gone on. I know you've had one mm-hmm. because you phoned me, <laughs> video called me. About five minutes after waking up, <laughs> to tell me about something to do with work. <laughs> Not 100% coherently, I have to confess. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the thing is, though, I think you're in your truest state when you're, uh, when you're coming around from an anaesthetic. My truest state is workaholic. Um, so... Incoherent workaholic. Incoherent workaholic, exactly. All right, well, let's make things a little bit less incoherent because we have two experts joining us today. We have Dr Fiona Donald, who is president of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Yeah, that qualification seems appropriate. Mm-hmm. And we also have Anil Seth, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Sussex and General Consciousness Guru. Anil, let's start with you. 
being under a general anaesthetic, that is not the same as being asleep, right? So what is the difference? It really isn't the same. I've had a number of general anaesthetics. And what's always struck me is how different it is. When you go to sleep and you wake up again, there's always a sense of some time having passed. You, you know, you know, it's roughly been a few hours. But under anaesthesia, it's not just the experience of absence. It's the absence of any experience. You could have been under for five minutes, five hours or, or 50 years even. The, the ends just join up. You're gone and then you're back. It's a, it's a kind of premonition of, a, of the oblivion that might have been there before you were born or maybe after you die. Goodness, I mean, that is quite a profound thought for right at the top of Curious Cases, but let's go with it. So the, we're not going to spend much time talking about the nature of consciousness because that's a whole series in itself. But it's the absence of self. You do. You, you, you kind of cease to exist. I think that's right. I think you just go away entirely. The brain, you know, it's still going, it's still doing stuff. Your body is still alive. It's, it's really, I think, it's one of the best inventions ever. And it just turns the self off. But more than the self, it turns off any experience, an experience of the outside world. And of course, the experience of the surgeon cutting into your body, which is why it's such a brilliant invention. And it's also when you need someone like Fiona <laughs> to be in the room with you. Fiona, I, I know that you, you do a lot of work dishing out the drugs, but have you ever undergone a general anaesthetic yourself? Yes, I have. And um, just once, can I agree, it is really different to um, going to sleep. Um, you, you just lose that time completely. And, and the other thing is that, um, so at the end, like at the end of my um, operation, when I was in the recovery room, I apparently had a long conversation with the anaesthetist um, and we discussed many things of which I have absolutely no memory. I've, I've really enjoyed the last general anaesthesia I had because it wasn't for an emergency operation. It was a planned surgery, a relatively minor one. And I still remember talking to the anesthesiologist on the way in and asking him all sorts of, probably for him, unexpected questions about exactly what, what I was getting and what the timescale was going to be. And then really trying to pay attention to what <laughs> happened at the moment that the anesthetic went in. Adam, you mentioned that you feel that cold, that mm, real, really, really weird sensation of chill, isn't it, from the inside? But now but I'm just thinking remember... that you as a professor of consciousness must be singularly the worst patient that an anaesthetist wants to meet <laughs> on the way in. Yeah, Tell me you know everything what? about what's happening. <laughs> you know what? The anaesthetist always has a last word because I can just be <laughs> gabbling on, but they, <laughs> they turn the tap on and I'm gone. <laughs> but have you been, I mean, that conversation when you come round, there is something kind of interesting about that. Do people say mad stuff? Do people generally come up with completely I, I for that. <laughs> bonkers ideas as they're coming round? They, I think they... They might be a little bit more disinhibited than than normal, um, but in general they make they make sense, and so that's what sort of lulls you into a false sense of security that you think you're having a a really um, good conversation with them. And what what do we know about the pharmacology of what's actually going on? That 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 loss of self that Anna was describing there. Do we do we understand what's going on in terms of the drugs? So yeah, I don't think we've got a full understanding of you know how every dr drug works, but we do know quite a bit. So there's been there's been a lot of theories over the years, but um, I think the sort of most recent theories are that it's around ion um, gated channels, and that that's um, their GABA channels. So GABA is uh, gamma amino butyric acid, and it's probably just it's probably not just one thing, but in general, what's happening is that by interacting with those receptors, they're kind of reducing the amount of excitation and the amount of transmission of signals, essentially, so that you then lose consciousness. 
I okay. I'm just. Bit, I mean, I heard some stuff about ions. I heard some stuff about receptors. But what I did hear there was that people aren't sure about how this thing works. Have I have I understood that correctly? That people have been dishing out general anaesthetics without knowing what they're doing. So um, I wouldn't put it quite like that. Um, I would say that we generally know, you know, we know how they're going to work and we know the effects they're going to have and the side effects and how to manage things. But I think the complete exact mechanism of exactly how general anaesthetics work hasn't been completely worked out yet. Okay, let, let me let me see if I've understood this then. So in your brain, you've got neurons firing around all over the place and you want to get something that stands in the way and stops the receptors picking up on those neurons firing. I think that's that's the sort of thing. So what it, what it does is blocks blocks a receptor where that transmission might occur and thereby causes causes the effect yeah and that happens as i say at the gaba receptors and we also know that it happens at nmda receptors yeah no i do want to ask you about just the practicalities of it because all four of us and i expect many of the listeners have had general anesthetics at some point what happens you know how do you apply the drugs what, what happens after we go under so we first of all have to pop a little um, tube into one of the veins so that we can give the drugs into the vein because most of the drugs that we give go in through the through the veins and people would just gradually drift off to sleep and then you can either keep people asleep by getting them to breathe gases that will keep them asleep or you can continue with the drugs through the vein and then at the end you just stop the drugs and then they wake up it's magic it's basically magic it does sound a bit like magic but okay, the drugs that you're giving, this cocktail of drugs that you're giving, do you also have to? Are there different physiological things that you need to control? I'm thinking about swallowing and breathing while you're under. That, that's a really interesting question, and people will generally continue to breathe under anaesthetic for themselves, um, unless you paralyse their muscles, so then they can't breathe, and then you have to take over their breathing. So if you're going to take over their breathing, um, we have ventilators that we use. But a lot of anaesthetics are done and with people just continuing to breathe for themselves. What about swallowing? What about sort of, uh, you know, clearing your, your throat of saliva? Mm. So people don't generally swallow under anaesthetic because you're at a, a kind of deep level of loss of consciousness such that you, you wouldn't necessarily swallow. If people are swallowing, it might be a sign that they're um, a bit lighter under the anaesthetic than you would like. Have you, um, I, I, so, do people ever wake up? Has that ever happened? Have you ever been there where someone... So so this, again, is an important issue in, in anaesthesia. And, and we talk about accidental awareness under general anaesthesia. <gasps> and that's where someone is un, unintentionally awake. Now, that doesn't happen very often at all. And we have um, monitoring that we can use. So we, so we have clinical monitoring where we're looking at the patient because we're always with the patient when they're asleep. But we also have um, brain monitors that we can use to look at the brain activity. And that gives us a very good idea of whether the anaesthetic is deep enough, not too deep, because of course, you don't want to give people too much anaesthetic either. It must be a very serious thing to, to, to need to avoid. I mean, I imagine quite life threatening if somebody were to wake up while they're I don't know, having major abdominal surgery. It's it's not so much that it's life threatening. It's that it's re it's horrible, 
and it, it can lead to post-traumatic stress, mm. all sorts of very unpleasant um, sequelae. So obviously we do everything we can to avoid that. And as I say, it is very rare. So I, I want the public to be reassured. can't imagine much more terrifying than waking up in a hospital, not being able to well, move or come I was wondering whether you were going to mention that, because that's the other terrifying thing about, uh, you know, these, these sort of incidents of awareness during anaesthesia, which is that the person may often be paralysed as well, so not able to demonstrate that they're in fact awake um which is i think some of the old and fiona you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think some of the older methods here involved basically putting a tourniquet on so that the paralytic the curare didn't affect one limb so that if the person did wake up they would be able to you know wave with their left hand to say that, that i'm awake yeah the isolated forearm technique yeah. yeah, the isolated oh. forearm technique. Yeah. yeah. So what this? So hang on, let me make sure I understand this. Then, so historically, I mean, back when people didn't know how anaesthetics worked, <laughs> you could be conscious but paralysed, physically, physically placid, but um, but but totally awake in your mind and unable to signal to surgeons and those around you that that this was going on. And so, how long ago we talk? I mean, you you said this as though it was like a standard thing, Fiona. No, I mean, I've I've never seen the isolated forearm technique. It's a it's an ancient, you know, it's a historical technique. The most serious forms of awareness under general anaesthesia, which are extremely rare, rare are the ones where people are completely awake but paralysed. Now that does still happen, mm. and that is a generally a medical error. But it's very, very rare. And the fact that we've got all the machinery that we've got now, that makes it much, much less likely to happen now. And of course, I mean, I don't want to trivialise this too much, but of course, your job is not done as soon as the person is, is, is knocked out. You don't sit there, you know, playing solitaire on your phone for the rest of the surgery. You're monitoring for changes in, in physiology, right? That's right. So before we start, we uh, wire people up to lots of monitors to look at all um, their physiological variables, heart rate, their oxygen levels, their blood pressure. And obviously what, what the surgeon is doing will have an effect on that as well as what we're giving. So sometimes we need to give drugs to help keep things like the blood pressure normal, or sometimes we just need to give a little bit more painkiller or something like that. You mentioned there, Fiona, about not giving too much anaesthetic. I mean, I imagine these, these drugs are pretty potent, but, but what would happen if you were to give somebody too much? Does it affect when they wake up? So the main anaesthetic that we use is a drug called propofol. I mean, all anaesthetics generally will drop the blood pressure anyway, but it could drop the blood pressure more than you'd like. It might slow down someone's breathing more than you'd like. But equally, we know that particularly in the elderly and the frail or people who were generally unwell, um, those effects can be exacerbated. And so you really want to make sure that you're in that sweet spot where you're giving enough anaesthetic to make sure that they're obviously asleep during the, during the operation, but not causing too many side effects. You're walking a tightrope then, it sounds like. We're skilled professionals and uh, we do this a lot. And, and so actually it's not as much as a tightrope as it sounds. I, mean, I, st- I, can't, I still can't quite get over the idea that you could have an entire career in administering drugs to people and still not really be totally sure about the ways in which it's working. Yeah, I, c- I, can, I can see <laughs> where you're coming from. I mean, I think the thing is that they have a consistent way of working. So when you give the drug, it has a consistent way of working. And so you you recognize that that is happening so i'm not sure that you actually need 
to know the molecular basis of what's happening in order to be able to use those drugs. I mean, there are lots of things we do in life where we don't know the, the full mechanism of, of why, why something's working. You could still play ball sports before Newton came along and explained gravity to us. Absolutely. So, obviously, one of the roles of the anaesthetist is to is to monitor the physiology and that includes monitoring brain activity as Fiona mentioned. Now we're going to delve deep into the brain now because we want to know what's going on in the brain during a general anaesthetic and what that can tell us about awareness and alertness and how consciousness normally works. And to kick us off, we spoke to an old friend of yours, Adam, Irene Tracy. You remember her, Adam? Yeah, well, she's no friend of mine. Oh, come on now. Irene is a professor of anaesthetic neuroscience at Oxford University. And uh, listeners might remember her because um, she runs a little torture lab and uh, she stabbed and electrocuted and burnt Adam uh, with chilies. Unfortunately, nothing. Uh, we couldn't get we couldn't get sign off or anything. No, I think there was a heat gun involved. Uh, OK, as well. sure. OK. Yep, anyway, yep. it was all part of our episode on pain. Um, and I seem to recall you quite liked it well maybe i mean a little bit (laughs) okay anyway we spoke to irene about uh, an exciting experiment that she did to explore how patterns of brain activity change as doses of anesthetic increase and that involved putting people in little eeg caps like swimming hats with electrodes inside as well as looking at their brain activity in a scanner we actually did what we call a multimodal imaging experiment so we had people with those swimming caps on the eeg kit and we put them inside our large brain imaging scanner. Whilst the subjects had been bombarded with painful stimuli and auditory stimuli, so we were seeing how the brain was reacting to that. But what we did then was started to infuse in the anaesthetic agent, propofol, but instead of just squirting it in, we very, very slowly um, gave the anaesthetic. So instead of taking them into deep unawareness in 15 seconds, we took about 30 minutes to take them down, allowing each person's brain to react to that increasing dose of anaesthetic and to switch off in the way that that brain wanted to. Now, I've spent 30 years looking at people's brains, and I know that people's brains are very different, and the brain is what you're switching off during general anaesthesia. And so what we were looking for in the analysis was, are there common things that are happening to everybody in terms of how the brain is switching off, and are there things that are unique to each person's brain? So we stumbled across this incredible serendipitous finding that when people were uh, having an increasing dose of anaesthetic, the dose was carrying going up, 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 up. And as it went up, everybody mounted these slow waves. And then suddenly one person would reach a limit and they wouldn't make any more. And even though the dose of anaesthetic kept on going up, that was it for them. And then the next subject did exactly the same, but maybe they reached a different level that was maybe a little bit more or a little bit less. But when they reached their own individualized maximum level of slow waves, we realized the brain had gone into what I call perceptual unawareness. It was sort of lights out. So even though the signals were coming in, they were not being rooted to the right bits of the brain. So we're very excited about this as a potential new device that we could create that could really help anesthetists deliver in a more titrated and bespoke way just the right amount of anaesthetic. Okay, Anil, there's a lot going on there and a lot to unpack from my uh, friend, Irene, there. So basics first. When she talks about mounting slow waves, what, 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 what is Irene talking about? She's talking about these very slow oscillations in overall brain activity. The brain was always oscillating. Its, its activity flows, it comes and it goes, it goes up and it goes down. And it does this at various different frequencies. There's the 
alpha rhythm, which is very prominent, usually over the visual cortex at the back of the brain. This is an oscillation at about 10 hertz, 10 cycles per second. But what Irene is talking about are delta oscillations. These are much slower, about one to four cycles per second. And what she observed in her this is a brilliant experiment just to infuse the anaesthetic very slowly is that these delta waves, these very slow waves, those become much more prominent. And this hints at an underlying mechanism for anesthesia and loss of consciousness in general. Basically, these, these slow waves, these delta oscillations, they show that the brain is periodically, you know, a few times every second, just entering this state of, of very little activity. And what that means is for each individual neuron, each individual brain cell, there's, it sort of forgets what it's doing. You know, it's normally getting inputs from a bunch of other neurons. And then in these down states, these low states, everything goes quiet. And the neuron just stops. And then when it restarts, it's like, well, what was happening? And it starts just behaving a little bit randomly. And what this means is that the overall patterns of information flow and communication throughout the brain are broken. And that's what we really see at a whole brain level. We see an interruption of how different parts of the brain speak to each other. That's really interesting because you're saying that we see that at a neuronal level, at a brain level, but also as we started the program, you know, talking about having a chat with Hannah when she'd just woken up from her last general anaesthetic, it also works at a sort of personality level. You've had a pause in your personality <laughs> and you wake up slightly confused. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, your neurons forget and you forget as well. There's a nice parallel there. And she seems to be talking that, about there being a sort of threshold, that there's lots of variants. It, it seems to be very individualised at which point the drug turns your brain off. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's not that surprising, really. I mean, we all have different brains, so it's very likely that we're going to respond to anaesthetics in different ways. I mean, that's part of the, the art of anaesthesia that Fiona was talking about. You can't just know exactly how much anaesthetic it's going to take to keep someone at that fine balance between just enough and not too much. So looking for a signature in the brain that can tell us when someone is anaesthetized when they've lost consciousness just at that threshold that's that's an extremely useful thing to be able to do that's an interesting point there fiona that animal makes is that do you notice this 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 variation in different individuals the level of anesthetic that they each require yeah yeah no people are different with certain people it takes quite a long time for them to go off to sleep and they're quite restless as they're going off to sleep whereas other people will go to sleep quite quickly seemingly with the same um, amount of drugs. So, yeah, quite a lot of variation. One of the things that we know about um, pain thresholds from the, the episode back a few series ago that involved me being tortured by Irene is that we know that for localised pain, for topical pain, that people vary, and we know that. My, my colleague sitting across from me with her ginger hair. Gingers need more anaesthetic, is that true? Gingers have a higher pain threshold. That is, that is supposed to be true, yes. <gasps> now, that's local anaesthetic, that's local pain. Does, it, does, this, does this sort of variation transfer into general, into in the brainwaves that we're talking about? I think, it's more, I think it's more around pain than actual anaesthesia. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, not as dose even so, as you, you know what, even so, I, t- I need to pump me full of drugs, enough to knock out a small horse. That's a... <laughs> uh, yes, well, anyway, but that, that individual variation, <laughs> I want to go back to thinking about what's happening in the brain, Anil, that, that that must give us clues to what the actual physiology, what the neurochemistry, it, 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 what, what neurochemistry is happening in the brain when consciousness is switched off, if there is so much variance between people. There's a lot of various. I think there's important levels to think about how anaesthetics work. One is this very basic level of what are anaesthetic 
chemicals doing to the neurons or to the synapses, the connections between neurons. And here, a really important clue comes from the fact that anesthetics don't just work on humans. They work on pretty much anything that's alive. They work on mice, they work on insects, they work on fruit flies, they work on bacteria, and they even work on plants. Now, you have these... Uh, these plants called mimosa pudica, the so-called don't-touch-me plant, touch-me-not plant, and if you touch it, its leaves retract. Um, if you infuse a plant like that with, with anaesthetics, it loses the ability to respond. So anaesthetics, at some level, work on something that's shared across pretty much everything that's alive. And that might be, as we were talking about earlier, it might be something very, very fundamental to do with the membranes at the surfaces of cells and, and how their shapes are formed and so on. But, Arnold, do you, but, think, but, do you think we should start anaesthetising carrots before we cut into them? Well, I mean, I, th I think you should, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, well, anyway, I want to go back to thinking about what's happening in the brain. That, is it possible to even score levels of consciousness? How do we actually, do we, is there a metric? Do we, how do we know how conscious one is? There are a number of metrics that, as, as Fiona was mentioning, there have been brain monitoring has been happening in operating theatres for a very long time to try and keep track of the level of anaesthesia. And there's actually been some very exciting research that has developed new kinds of consciousness or anaesthesia meters that um, go a little bit beyond just measuring how strong particular waves are, like these delta oscillations in the brain. So there are, there's a kind of a new generation of consciousness meters uh, that have been tested under anaesthesia, but also under other ways of losing consciousness like sleep or in people with, with severe brain injury as well. And these are all based on measuring the complexity of the brain dynamics under these different conditions. And by complexity, I mean something very intuitive here. Like so when the brain is doing something very, very predictable, you know, just repeated patterns over and over again, that's very low complexity. And when the brain is behaving completely randomly, like every neuron doing its own thing, every neuron for itself, that's also not very complex either. Complexity in this sense is this balance between simplicity and predictability and, and randomness. And a new approach that's, that's been pioneered for the last 20 years or so has been measuring levels of brain complexity. And one really good way of doing this, a very impressive way, I think is very, very cool actually, is by using a combination of EEG, which we've already talked about, which measures the tiny electrical fields generated by brain cells, and a method called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And this is basically put a big magnet by the brain, turn it on very briefly, and it, it injects a pulse of energy into the brain. And you don't notice this, it just activates the, the brain through the skull. And you can see the response to the, this activation in the EEG. It's a bit like banging on the brain with an electrical hammer and listening to the echo. And what you find is that by measuring the complexity of the echo, you know, is it, is it just like throwing a stone into a pond and there's a, there's a single response, but it all dies out very quickly? That goes along with unconscious states. But if the echo is complex, like you throw a few stones into the pond and all these waves are bouncing around and you just see these complicated patterns that come and go over space and time, that's indicative of a conscious state. And what's really exciting is that researchers have been able to put a number to this complexity. And this number seems to be able to track 
conscious level, both in anesthesia, but also in sleep and, and after brain injury and, and many other conditions too. And this gives us a clue about everyday consciousness as well. We need this uh, we need these complex interactions where different parts of the brain speak to each other in different ways in order to be conscious. So there's, I mean, in summary, still quite a lot we don't understand. I think there's still a lot to, to discover. Uh, I didn't mention this at the beginning of the programme, but I'm actually having a general anaesthetic tomorrow. So um, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be more fearful uh, after this conversation or less. Um, <laughs> thank you so much to our guests, uh, Anil Seth and Fiona Donald. <laughs> So, Professor Fry, when it comes to the question of how anaesthetics actually work, can we say case solved? Absolutely not, Dr Rutherford. Real doctors use them every day and no one quite knows what magic chemistry is happening in our brains. We fully lose a sense of self, though. Our consciousness is erased temporarily. Anaesthetics involve blocking certain neurochemical pathways and putting the brain into a holding pattern of slow brain waves. But precisely how anaesthesia actually works remains one of science's great mysteries. Fifteen years ago, 23-year-old Norwegian student Martina Vik Magnusson was killed in an apartment near Mayfair. Twenty-three-year-old Martin Vik Magnusson was found partially buried in the basement. Police investigating the murder of a Norwegian socialite in central London. Her body was found in the building where the only suspect was living, Baruch Abdelhak, the son of one of the Middle East's richest and most powerful men. Before being questioned, Farouk fled from the UK to Yemen, where he's been ever since. I'm Noelle Al-Makhafi. I made a promise to Martina's family over a decade ago to find out what happened and do what no journalist nor the police have been able to do until now. Find Farouk. Murder in Mayfair. Listen to the whole story now by searching for the documentary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Welcome to the EY Health Sciences and Wellness Experience podcast series, a series dedicated to exploring the trends that are reshaping the industry. No one is completely blowing up their existing supply chain and, and rebalancing it. It's fairly globally distributed on an end-to-end -end basis already, and they're really assessing is there a risk to the existing supply chain. Join us to examine and embrace the age of health experience. Ahead of the coronation of King Charles III, some may ask, what's the point of modern monarchies? Join me, Catty Kay, as I visit royal houses across Europe, where kings and queens are swapping palaces for apartments and finding their place in a new era. It's a surprising story featuring scandals, shamans, and a royal dynasty plotting its return. Stream Europe's Royals Revealed on BBC Select. Find out more at bbcselect.com forward slash Europe's Royals. Oh! <laughs>